0: Welcome into another episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. I'm Dan Hope, joined by Colin Haas-Hill, as always, and a lot to get to on this week's episode of the show. Ohio State is a Big Ten champion for the third year in a row, and for the first time since 2016, Ohio State is going back to the college football playoff. Buckeyes are the number two seed. They'll be going to the Fiesta Bowl, and they'll be playing the same team they played last time they were in the college football playoff, Clemson, the number three seed, but guys, will certainly be hoping for a better result than last time around. You guys probably already know how that went, so I won't say it, but it's going to be an interesting matchup, that's for sure. We thought last week that if Ohio State won, there'd be a good chance the Buckeyes would be the number one seed, would get that easier matchup with the number four seed, which ultimately ended up being Oklahoma, but instead... LSU ends up moving up to that number one spot. Buckeyes fall into that number two spot. Now playing a really, really good team, the defending champion, a team that hasn't lost in two years. We've talked all year about the toughest test for the Buckeyes, the toughest test for the Buckeyes, but there's no question they're going to be in for a really tough test on December 28th.
1: Yeah, I think you could make a strong case and I think that I personally would make the case that that these are the top two teams in college football. I agree. And it's and it's and it's the reason why uh, there there was such talk in and and uh the the past month or so about whether it would be Ohio State or, or LSU as as the number 1 seed. Um because ultimately like like there's this there's this part about all fans I think that it's like if you beat Clemson and LSU after just beating uh, Wisconsin, Penn State, and Michigan—like that would be—that'd be incredible. Like as Absolutely. a fan, that would be really cool. And at the same time, like you also have to just sort of look at it from the other perspective as as an objective person and be like, like the other path ha- had Ohio State taken it, it would have been Oklahoma and then either Clemson or LSU. And you know what? That's also pretty tough. But right now, I mean, you're looking at what I think. Um, and, and, I, and I'll eventually I'll go back and look at it if if, if they if they do be Clemson. I, I I imagine like this probably has to be the like one of if not the single toughest stretches for um, any national champion. If, if Ohio State actually made that happen, these last five game stretches is, is pretty ridiculous against five top 15 teams.
0: Yeah, there's no question about that. Just just to get to this point at 13-0 and, and, and finish the stretch the Buckeyes did undefeated is impressive in itself. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Big Ten Championship game and what certainly proved to be a tough test against Wisconsin in a few minutes. But just sticking with Clemson for now, you're, you're right. If Ohio State pulls this off, it is going to be one heck of an accomplishment for the Buckeyes. Like you said, I think for a fan, this game is more exciting. Not, not that Ohio State-Oklahoma wouldn't have been an intriguing game as well, because Oklahoma's got a really explosive offense. There would have been some fun storylines in that game, like Alex Grinch playing against Ohio State. Two transfer quarterbacks going head-to-head and Justin Fields and Jalen Hurts. Two really explosive offenses. Certainly, I think Oklahoma... Just from an intrigue standpoint, would have been more intriguing than if that four seed had been Utah or if it hadn't been Baylor. But Clemson's still a diff- on a different level. I, I, I said it last week, and I said it, I'll say it again. I think the the top three teams are on such a different level from everyone else. And personally, I I, I think LSU is going to beat Oklahoma by multiple scores. I I, I, I think LSU is going to win that game big. I I don't I don't know, unless it will be a total blowout, but I also don't think it's going to be a a one-score tight down-to-the-wire game. I I just think these top three teams are so much better than everyone else that I think with the the extra time to prepare, I'm very confident that I think LSU is going to win that game and is going to go to the national championship game. But I think this game against Clemson can absolutely go either way. And I know a lot of our listeners, or at least some of them, probably – Wanted to see this game against Clemson because of the history against Clemson and it's an opportunity for Ohio State to turn the tables on Clemson and to If, if you beat Clemson and you beat LSU back to back, you leave absolutely no doubt that you're the best team in college football this year and Certainly, that's what people would love to see from these Buckeyes, but I do think from an objective standpoint if, LSU getting the number one seed, that gives them an advantage not only just for winning this game, but winning the next game too because I think if LSU beats Oklahoma soundly and Ohio State ends up in a four-quarter war with Clemson and whoever wins that game, that already gives LSU a little bit of an advantage going into that next game. So at the same time, I will say right now that whoever wins the Oklahoma... Who, excuse me. Whoever wins the Ohio State Clemson game is going to be my pick to win the national championship because I do believe they're the best two teams in the playoff. But I also do think that if you were Ohio State, you were definitely hoping to be that number one seed because I do think it gave you an advantage.
1: Yeah. the The, the reason why, um, like, I just have a simple reason why uh, that I, that I think that that Clemson is both the toughest test among these these uh, three other teams for Ohio State and um, the the one that stacks up and it and, and should be the best game and it's like to me it to me it just it's pretty simple and it's things that the others don't have it's they have these three aspects it's they have one of the best quarterbacks in college football they're undeniably complete and they're at the same talent level as Ohio State. And even if you look at the recruiting stars, I think until the last couple of years, maybe Clemson didn't recruit on the level that Ohio State did. I mean, they definitely didn't. And and that's probably the most impressive part, to be honest, about anything that Dabo Sweeney has done down there. It's that he managed to get Clemson to, to the point where they are competing with and beating the Ohio States and Alabamas of the world, yet they didn't have a, a, a roster that, that looks – like Ohio State's um, with the 2017-2018 recruiting classes, where they have multiple five stars, and and they're in the top two, and and now Clemson is getting to that point where now they're recruiting at that elite level as well. Um, but they with with their development, um, they they obviously have Trevor Lawrence, who everybody, you don't you don't need to explain someone how good Trevor Lawrence is. I know early in the year he he struggled a bit, but right now both he and he and the Tigers are rolling, um, and. The thing that made Ohio State so special is one of the parts to me that that make Clemson so special. And it's that there's just not a lot of holes on this team. There just aren't.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think those are all valid points, but I think it really is the point about completeness that makes Clemson such a tough test. Because you mentioned quarterbacks. The other two quarterbacks are Heisman finalists, just like Justin Fields. So no no matter where they were seated, they were going to be playing an elite quarterback. It's no coincidence that the four teams in the college football playoff have the four best quarterbacks in college football and that's not including Tua Tagovailoa because he's hurt so if I was picking the four best healthy quarterbacks in college football right now it would be those four in whatever order you want to go those are the four best quarterbacks and they are on the four best teams yeah
1: and and um if you were to pick among those these four teams which two are the best defenses
0: you would pick Clemson and Ohio State exactly exactly and that's why I think they're the two best teams. That's that, that's exactly it. It's really that simple. Yep. Um,
1: what, what else did you want to hit on this game? When, when, when you saw the draw, were you
0: surprised? I was not surprised because I had a feeling with the way the two games played out on Saturday that LSU was going to move up to number one. I think if Ohio State had blown out Wisconsin from the beginning and LSU had played a close game with Georgia i don't think anything would have changed but i think when lsu dominated georgia the way they did the wheels were already in motion for lsu to move up to the number one seed and i think ohio state really needed to come out and dominate wisconsin the same way lsu did against georgia and when o- and ohio state was trailing 21-7 at halftime and really needed to rally against wisconsin i think that cost them the number one seed
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. I think when we were sitting up there in the press box after the Big Ten title game, um, I think I I was saying I was 60-40 that they were going to be number two. I I thought, like, if you made me pick, I would have said that number two. But but I thought there was absolutely reason for them to still stick at number one. I mean, the way that I was thinking um, was, listen, they didn't have to put Ohio State back to number one before Ohio State beat Michigan, and yet they did. So when then Ohio State goes and uh, destroys Michigan and then Clemson beats uh, – or sorry, LSU beats Texas A&M, to me, all right, that's one more week where Ohio State, it's quote-unquote, extended their lead, I guess, I would say, uh, for the for number one spot. And then the next week, like it sort of played out as exactly what LSU needed to get that number one seat back. Yet at the same time, part of me wondered. I mean, I still think Ohio State is is the more complete team, but you sort of saw some of the cracks that, that maybe you hadn't seen earlier in the season. I do wonder if these three games had been spread out more, whether, well, I guess one, whether Ohio State would have, would have played better uh, against Penn State and Wisconsin, or if uh, the committee would have... Like looked at looked at the end of the year and seen a blowout or two rather than three real, three uh three games against top fifteen opponents where I think the, the the more games that you play in a row against top fifteen opponents the more difficult it is to win um, I think that, that that plays a large factor in it um, ultimately what I what I imagine it came down to was like you said Ohio State trailed at the half they needed that second half twenty seven uh, unanswered point comeback um, they. Maybe, maybe their defense had a little bit more cracks than, than you would expect in the last two games. And, like, honestly, like, if you just look at... Um, they had mentioned earlier in the season Chase Young's name, specifically. And if you just look at his, his recent production on the stat sheet, it doesn't say that he had five sacks in the last two weeks. Um, I, I do think that that even those small things matter. And, I mean... It's it's just hard to get in the minds of the committee members, but but those those are the factors that I'm I'm thinking of.
0: Yeah, I think the reality is the College Football Playoff Selection Committee is a reactionary body, and I think we saw that all year with the way Ohio State and LSU kind of flip-flopped between those one and two spots over the last six weeks, is that one big game, the most recent game, can really hold a lot of sway in their opinions, and... That's why I wasn't surprised. I, I don't necessarily I don't necessarily agree with the decision. I, I also don't strongly disagree with it. I think, I think both teams had a valid case for number one. I still think it, it probably the overall body of work favors Ohio State. and I think like you said, the factor of playing three really good teams in a row, it, it's hard to play your best three weeks in a row when you're playing against free top 15 teams. And I think just based on what Rob Mullen said, and he doesn't say much, but I got the impression that maybe the committee didn't give that very much weight. And that my opinion would be maybe it should have given it a little more weight. Certainly. I I think the perception among Ohio state fans, and there's probably some truth to it would be that the sec tends to get the benefit of a doubt way more than other conferences. And, I think Georgia was probably overrated to begin with. I don't know if they necessarily should have been number four before this week, and I think they maybe were given a little too much weight, and I think that's part of a reason why LSU ends up at number one, but I also think LSU had a valid case. I think LSU had four really big wins. Their defense did improve. It was playing its best football at the end of the year, so while I, I, I still think overall body of work, clearly Ohio State and Clemson had better defenses. LSU did look like a more complete team in its last few games, so I think that helped. And the way Joe Burrow has played, the way that offense has played all year, they're certainly an elite team. They're certainly just as capable as anyone of winning this national championship. So it was a tough debate. I I think the committee had a tough decision to make. Certainly, if I was Ohio State, I would feel like they should be the number one seed. I think the Buckeyes had a very valid argument for that, but now they've got to move forward. They've got to move forward to playing Clemson, and that's not going to be easy. So I think, you know, they've just gotta they've just gotta put all their focus on on what's to come and and the hands that they've been dealt.
1: Yeah, I know that we want to talk um, just just a little bit about clemson because we've now we have a couple weeks to dive deeper into clemson and i know that we're going to um but but i also know that that you spent time covering clemson um so i just wonder is there anything that maybe ohio state fans should know about this team or this program heading into this game
0: well you know first of all we're we're talking about the program that has been the most dominant program in college football for the last five years. I put them above Alabama at this point because they've now gone two years dating back to the start of last season without losing a game. Alabama, of course, didn't make the playoff this year. Clemson did. This is a program that has consistently since 2015 has been one of the two or three best teams in college football every single year and has consistently performed at an elite level. And I know if you look... if Maybe if you just look at the recruiting rankings, they might show that Ohio State is is more talented. But if you really watch Clemson, this team is as good as any team in the country. They, they're loaded on both sides of the ball. They've got a lot of legit superstars, future NFL players. And I think they certainly are a number three seed and should have been the number three seed because they did not play a lot of competition during the regular season and Ohio State is going to be by far the toughest test Clemson has played all year but I think if you go into this game thinking Ohio State is clearly better than Clemson because Clemson hadn't played anybody that's a flawed argument I think Clemson is I think Clemson is absolutely as good as any team in the country I, I think too much focus was put on one bad game they had against North Carolina when they really dominated every single other game they played this year and it's tough when you don't when you don't have that chance to prove it in a big game like LSU and Ohio State did there's always going to be those lingering questions but i think this Clemson team is really really good i think they have a really good coaching staff who has proven that they will step up for big games and that that they you give them three weeks to prepare for a game like this, they're probably gonna have a really good game plan. Certainly Ohio State has seen that before, seen that three years ago. So it's it's a really it's a really good football team. And you know, I, I did cover them for a couple of years. Haven't followed them as closely the last few years, obviously. So hoping maybe next week or or certainly when we're in Arizona to try to bring uh Clemson beat writer on the show and get some more of their insight, you know, for you guys about really specifics about the team, but you know, I think it's a really good team. I think it's a really good good matchup. I also think that you know, some Clemson fans are very confident going into this game and probably because of 2016 and I don't think this game is going to be anything like 2016. I mean, I'll I'll tell you right now I I picked Clemson to win that game in 2016. And not just because I was covering Clemson at the time, but because I thought Clemson was clearly the better team. And I, I actually remember doing a QA and a for 11 Warriors. Eric Sager was the football beat writer at the time, and we exchanged Q&As because I had known Eric going back to when we both worked for the Lantern. And I remember predicting that Clemson would win. And a lot of the commenters, some of you who may be listening to our podcast now... Did not have favorable opinions of me at the time, and that's understandable, but my perception of this game going into this year is very different than it was for years ago, and that's not just because I'm covering the other team, but it's because I think Ohio State is a much better team now, especially on the offensive side of the ball, than it was for years ago. And so, I think we're in for a really good game. I I don't think I'm ready to make a prediction yet on how it's going to play out, because I do think these teams are really evenly matched. But I think it's going to be a really good game. Yep,
1: I agree with that. Um, and if you want to talk about that, uh, that the, the commenters thought that that you were wrong, then uh, this, 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 this makes it a smooth transition because there were, there was a, a few minute stretch there on Saturday in the Big Ten title game that I thought I was about to be very wrong in everything that I had said leading up to that.
0: Yeah, I think we were both wrong because we both, we both. I felt very confident last week that this game was going to be lopsided and that it was going to be a lot like the first game. And in some respects, it was like the first game because both games in the second half, Ohio State really took over, dominated the game and pulled away. But certainly, the first half of this game was not what either of us were expecting. Yeah, th- Ohio- there was... A- Sorry. Go ahead. Go-,
1: go ahead. I, I was going to say, the, like, one major misfire that, that I think I had was... I uh, what the way that I viewed it was that the rematch was gonna was gonna help Ohio State more than it helped Wisconsin, and it turned out like at least in my opinion, it was the complete opposite. Because at least for the first half, it just felt like Wisconsin had a really nice game plan. Wisconsin knew what it wanted to do. It knew specific either areas or, or personnel advantages that that it wanted to that it wanted to attack, and and I think that like the Badgers, it's not like the Badgers don't know. It's not like Paul Chris doesn't know that they're at a talent disadvantage. Um, they they have to find these small areas and, and and I think that I think that the first game allowed them to go back, look at the film, figure out maybe where they can attack Ohio State, and then and then it went out and did it. And I think that uh, Justin Fields' knee injury helped them in some respects. I think Jeff Okuda um, being out helped them a little bit. I think that they obviously dif- they, they they blocked Chase Young much differently and, and much more effectively. Um, and I think that that they altogether had a really smart game plan. And I give credit to them.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think certainly, clearly, the first half Wisconsin came into this game with a better game plan, and they out schemed the Buckeyes in the first half. They Their offense did a much better job moving the ball than they ever did in the first game. We saw Jonathan Taylor break free for some big plays that we didn't see. We saw Jack Cohn take advantage of what I think has been a a bit of a weakness here for Ohio State for a little while, and it hadn't really burned them yet, but I do think they've had some issues with a quarterback run all year, and that burned them a little bit in the first half, Jack Cohn making some plays with his feet. And then, you know, certainly... Defensively, Wisconsin got off to a great start as well. And and they got off to a pretty good start in the first game too, holding Ohio State to, to 10 points in the first half that game. But I think what surprised me was I think my feeling was this time around, without the bad weather at play, I thought Ohio State's offense was going to be sharper from the beginning. And like you said, I, I do think Fields' knee injury had an impact on the game you know Ryan Day had said leading up to it that he he didn't think it was going to be a big issue but I think it clearly was. I I think some of their pass protection issues bubbled to the surface in this game and I think that was twofold. I think I think Wisconsin had a really good game plan for bringing pressure against the Buckeyes. They they have some really good pass rushers. They have a really good defensive front and and I think that they did a really good job scheming up and finding ways to get pressure on fields, but I also think he wasn't as mobile as he usually is and so that magnified some of the issues that maybe he's been able to mask for most of a year but wisconsin played really well for half and i know certainly going into halftime of this game i was not sure whether i was going to be writing about a win or a loss
1: i i, I vividly remember when uh, i went back to grab water or something and or four or five Ohio State beat riders back there, and we're all talking. Do you think what do you think is going to happen in the second half? I remember I said I, I thought Ohio State would lose. Um, and then sort of exactly what happened, um, in, in some other games, but was they they made they regrouped at halftime, they, they made they made certain adjustments, then they just all together they just they played better. <laughs> like it's it, it's fairly simple in, the, in that regard but but sort of throughout the board they played better. Um, I think that they managed to get they managed to get drives better going and and, and honestly if you look at the first if you look at the first um, the first half drives, like largely their struggles were because Justin fields got sacked um and that and that that just ended drives and and to and to me, if Justin Fields was healthy, there there were a few of those that I just think he can he can make a play, um, and and he didn't. And and like Justin, I think has to be a little bit smarter, um, and and deciding when to either throw it away or run, especially with that knee. But he's also programmed in the way where he's just like he's he's ultra confident in himself. He he thinks he thinks he can do he thinks he can do certain things and even if he has a sprained MCL or whatnot, I, I think I think he imagines he can do that. And um and if you look at Ohio State what what they did in the in the third quarter, they scored every time they had the ball in the first half. They only scored once.
0: Yeah, I remember one Ohio State beat writer who I won't name walking by us after Wisconsin went up fourteen nothing and proclaiming that Ohio State was definitely going to lose the game. So that did not happen, but... I don't it, even there remember was, that, but it wasn't me. It was not you. It was but, not thankfully. you. I can confirm that. But uh, there, there was some, some Purdue-Iowa feel to this game for a little bit. It, 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 the first half, there was definitely some feel like you know, maybe Ohio State had run out of steam. Maybe, you, you know, because we'd, we'd seen this play out before where they win a big game, and then the next week they kinda have that let down. And there was some field of effort. Maybe after the big win against Michigan. A win that we know that they care so much about and we're celebrating. But maybe they just weren't gonna get up for this one. But again, I, I think it's another we, we talked for much of a year about how we hadn't seen this team face adversity. We hadn't seen this team play a four quarter game. We didn't know how Ryan Day was gonna be able to handle that. And again, I think this is another box checked Another test passed for Ryan Day that they were down by multiple scores. They hadn't been down by multiple scores all year, and they were down by multiple scores at halftime. And they regrouped. They made the adjustments they needed to make, and they came back out in the second half and dominated. So that's another thing we needed to see from this team. And so far, they've passed every test. I do think the. I do think the flip side of that though is I do think playing Clemson, I think that's the first game all year where Ohio State has to be on point for four quarters. I think this will be the game where if Ohio State has a bad quarter or a bad half, they might not be able to recover because... So far this year, every team Ohio State has played, it's had a talent advantage over. We've talked about that all year. There's only a few teams that can really match up with Ohio State from a talent standpoint. And that's why Ohio State has been able to take over and go on a big run in every single game it's played. But against Clemson, I don't know if Ohio State can do that. So I think that's going to be the big thing. Coming off these last couple games, we've seen the defense has had its two worst halves of the year in the last two first halves. So... There's a little bit more vulnerability in a defense that had been dominant all year. They've, they've looked a little more vulnerable. And I do think if you go down, if you're down by 14 points at the half against Clemson, you're probably not going to win that game.
1: Yeah, the, the like one interesting thing that, that I think that I'll take away from this game is like... It's similar to something that we've talked about all year. It's it's the risk the the risk of, of when you want Justin Justin Fields to scramble, when you want him to throw it away, when he like when can you make these smart decisions? Because a lot of their offense is like they they want it balanced. They want to throw it as much as they run it. At the same time, I think their identity might be a little bit more toward the the pound the ball run style. Um, and when you have that style, I think it it's a little Um, It's a little different when your quarterback is someone who um, on a third and seven might just go back there and and take a 12 yard sack. Um, It's, it changes the dynamic a little where I think that he's someone who's with his arm and his legs can win you games um, with, with, with certain, with certain plays at the same time. Like they, they can also end drives if he makes the wrong decision. And that's that, that is one, that is one part of the game that, I think we've we've seen cer we, we, we've seen it at times what it might look like against a Clemson or against one of the elite of the elites and at the same time um, I'll say that that on Saturday it made me wonder what might happen if, if he takes two sacks that that are at the wrong time
0: yeah and I do think pass protection is something that is a legitimate issue going into this game Clemson it, is one of the best defenses in the country. Arguably the best. They're they're certainly a team that can that can bring pressure against you and expose any weaknesses you have in their offense. And I also think Fields will be healthy for that game. I think free free weeks to to heal up, I think he'll be at a hundred percent or much closer to it than he was on Saturday. But I do think that's a little bit of an issue. I think, I think the offensive line has been absolutely dominant in, in run blocking. It might be the best offensive line in of the country in the run game. But I think I think pass protection has quietly been a little bit of a weakness for this team this year. And I think that was the first game where we really saw it affect them in an adverse way where it, it could have cost them if, it, if they weren't able to turn things around.
1: Yeah, it was interesting too because it seemed like um, it. It just seemed like Justin's throws weren't exactly on point too. Even the Jeremy Rucker touchdown, right? He, it he overthrew <laughs> it slightly, and it forced Jeremy to make an unbelievable catch. Um, which we should mention, by the way, too. It, it was it was the kind of catch that, like, I wrote about after the game. That like you've you've sort of just been. you've you've sort of just been waiting for for jeremy record to make those kind of plays because he came into ohio state as the second ranked tight end in his class he was honestly more wide receiver than tight end he he was viewed as this premier pass catching tight end um and i think at this point in the year he's 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 a sophomore right now he's he's averaging one catch per game um I don't think that that's going to change in the playoff. I, I think he'll still have a he'll, he'll have a small role. But the fact that they called that play and, and what they had done th- uh, last week was they had spent a lot of the week working on that play. Um, and that was a Ryan Day play that Ryan Day drew it up. He implemented it earlier in the week. Uh, Rucker was practicing that exact route after practices on Tuesdays and Wednesdays be- Tuesday and Wednesday before the game. Um, like, that's the kind of play that, that I'd be interested in, in seeing uh, Ruckert have more of because, I mean, there's there's only so many players on this team that can make that catch, whether wide receiver or tight end.
0: Yeah, I don't think it was drawn up for Ruckert to have to make such a difficult one-handed it catch. Definitely, but, it definitely definitely <laughs> was, definitely wasn't drawn up with that way. But it sure was impressive. And I, and I did notice re-watching the game and, and, and looking over some of the snaps that were played that, they were making more of a conscious effort than they have all year to get Rucker in the game on third down in passing situations, subbing him in for Luke Farrell or Rashad Berry in some situations where they hadn't in previous years. So I think that's something to watch for, him continuing to be a guy that that is on the field more in those downfield passing situations. And like you said, I've, we've been waiting for that because... He is the most talented pass catcher they have at the tight end position. I think Luke Farrell is the most complete tight end they have, and it's well-established. This is never going to be an offense that throws the ball eight times to the tight end in a game. It's just, it's, just, it's just not. It's just not the way this offense is designed. But Ruckert has an ability at that position to make plays that none of the other tight ends do, and that was an example of that. So I, I think that was huge for him. To be able to make that play, I think I think that was that was one of the big plays of the game. I think an, another play, also by a tight end, that I think was, is a play worth revisiting was the fake punt in the first half when the Buckeyes were down fourteen to nothing, and they're at their own twenty-six yard line. And Ryan Day took a huge risk to attempt a fake punt. Drew Chrisman threw a perfect pass to Luke Farrell for the first down. And they ultimately didn't get any any points out of that. But that was still a huge play. Because for one, if it doesn't work, you're giving Wisconsin the ball in prime territory. They're probably going to score again and have a free score lead against you. So it's a, it's a huge risk. But I think it did give the Buckeyes a spark, even though they didn't get any points on that drive it helped take away some of the momentum that Wisconsin had and it it goes in line with what we've seen from Ryan Day all year where he's he doesn't coach scared he's not afraid to take a chance and when he thinks his team needs a spark which they certainly did there he's going to be willing to take that chance and trust in his players to go make a play
1: yeah that that was that was an insane play call I did not see it live because I had my head in my computer. I was expecting them to punt it. Um, they're on their own 26-yard line, there's only there's only so many coaches in college football that would make that play, uh, that, that play call. Um, I, I, I think that we've learned as much about Ryan Day's aggression and his, and his risk-taking as, as really anything else this year. Um, he is very willing to go for it on fourth down. He's willing to kick an onside kick. He's willing to fake a punt. Um, I think I think fans should love it because it's almost like you just don't know exactly what he's going to do. Um, he's made that sort of a staple of, of 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 sort of who he is. I even go back to like he's a little bit of a risk taker in this way and in, th- in this regard, where um, he has belief in he has belief in his players and 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 his young players like. When when he puts Garrett Wilson back there after after um, muffing the ball to to the last three games and he still puts him out there in the Big Ten Championship, like to me that matters. Um, and to me, I thought back to when Dwayne Haskins was a sophomore um, and he was placed in the game. It's a story that Ryan Day has told a couple times. He was placed in the game. Um, I think he threw an interception, if I remember, and then I
0: think it was a fumble that was yes, turned for a touchdown.
1: Yeah, it was a fumble, and and uh, and Urban Meyer and Ryan Day pulled Dwayne out Dwayne out of the game. And they put the starters back in the game. Like I just wonder if if Ryan Day would keep him in there. Like I think Ryan Day is willing to do things a little bit more on the edge that maybe Urban Meyer wouldn't have um uh, maybe maybe a lot of other coaches wouldn't have he i think he's willing to ride talent in that way i think he's willing to put that talent in position to be aggressive and i think that's an exciting thing in a, in a young coach and and it's not always going to go right i think it's gone right more than it has um, gone wrong at this point. His fourth down success has been pretty solid. They got that onside kick against Maryland. Obviously, the fake punt worked. Like if that fake punt didn't work, that would that would be disastrous right there. You you might go down three touchdowns right there all of a sudden in the second quarter. Um, but I think I think I think Ryan Day showing that shows that. Listen, if, if there's a chance to be
0: aggressive in the college football playoff, like, he's going to. Yeah, I agree with that assessment, and I think that's part of why. The players are so bought in to what Ryan Day and his coaching staff are doing because they do trust the players, and I think I think when you when you put your players in those kind of positions and you, and you trust them to go make a play, I think that really increases the buy in of your players because the players themselves are gonna believe they can make that play. And, and and they want to get a chance to go do it. And and so I think when you show that level of confidence, when you have a talented freshman like Garrett Wilson, and you show that level of confidence in him that, yeah, he made a mistake, but, but we believe he's going to work through it, and he's going to. Be, we believe he's going to be an elite returner. I think that just increases the buy-in that that, that guys have in you. And I think it. And I think I think you mentioned it last week that. Sometimes it's an investment for the future of just building up these guys' confidence, letting them work through their mistakes and and giving them those opportunities to grow as players. And I think Ryan Day has done a good job of doing that, all the while winning every game, which is ultimately the most important thing.
1: Yep, this was, I think, it's interesting when when we look back to evaluate Ryan Day's first year, um, like at this point, it would be hard for me to see a scenario in the college football playoff unless they just get beat uh, 114 to zero. That this has not been a successful year for Ryan Day. I think I think this has been a really impressive year one. Um, he's put together a solid recruiting class, uh, better than solid, um, and he has had a he, he made strong staff hires. They're undefeated. They're one of them. They have had the most dominant season uh, in all of college football. They ended the season with three top fifteen wins. Um, the last one was a comeback from from multiple touchdowns in the second half. I mean, altogether, this is really it's all Ohio State could have asked for in year one from Ryan Day.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And the reality is, the expectations are at Ohio State. Are to go win a national championship. So unless Ohio State does that, there's going to be some disagree appointment disappointment that the Buckeyes didn't accomplish that. But just in terms of what Ryan Day has already accomplished, this is just a second time in school history that Ohio State has gotten a 13 and 0. The only other time they did that was in 2002, when they ultimately went undefeated and won the national championship. So t- to go undefeated. In his first regular season, to win his third straight Big Ten championship, to not only win all of these games but dominate most of them, and have a case for being the best team in the country, what he's done, what this team has done this year, is phenomenal. And I and I hope that no matter how it plays out, like you said, you you can't lose 31 to nothing in the playoff. I'd be shocked if that happens. But I I hope that no matter what happens from here, I I hope that people recognize how phenomenal this season has been. Because we'll admit it, this has absolutely surpassed our expectations. Absolutely. Expect- I, th- I think we both ultimately settled on 11-1 and one in our predictions before the year, but I, I know there was a part of me that thought, you know, maybe this team goes 10-2, and two, maybe it goes 9-3. and three. You're, There were just so many unknowns going into the year that I, I was not overly confident that this team was going to be a, a college football playoff team. So... For them to have this kind of year, it's been phenomenal. And and I hope people appreciate I hope people appreciate that no matter what happens from this point out. I hope people appreciate that to do what Ohio State has done, and especially as a first year head coach, is unbelievable.
1: And if we're gonna talk about unprecedented then then we can transition to the award season because Ohio State is sending two players to New York as Heisman finalists. They're quarterback and defensive end, which is, I believe, the first time that a team has sent two players, with one being from offense and one being from
0: defense. That's correct. That's correct. They're, they've only been doing finalists for the Heisman since 1982. Before that, the Heisman they only invited the winner to a ceremony. They they didn't they didn't have shoot. This, a, this
1: would be the perfect year for that.
0: <laughs> that is that is true because. We do know that Joe Burrow is going to win. We're not we're not going to we're not going to pretend like there's any intrigue going into Saturday. Joe Burrow is going to win. But that should not take away from the accomplishments for Justin Fields and Chase Young to be Heisman finalists because they both absolutely deserve to be there. They have both had fantastic seasons. Justin Fields, of course, being a first-year starter to, to come in with minimal playing experience in his first year at a new school, and be a Heisman Trophy finalist is a tremendous accomplishment. And then, of course, for Chase Young, defensive players just typically don't get invited to the Heisman. This is this is typically a quarterback and running back award. So for Chase Young, he's the first Ohio State defensive player to ever be invited to the Heisman ceremony, just the ninth defensive player period since they've been inviting finalists. So it's a tremendous accomplishment for both of those guys. J.K. Dobbins, of course, he he had a case too. And and you look back through the years, other than winning it, probably the most impressive year Ohio State's ever had. In the Heisman voting was 1973. John Hicks finished second. Archie Griffin finished fifth. Of course, the next two years, he went on to win the award. But he finished fifth that year. And Randy Gradishar finished sixth. I think that's probably going to happen again. We already know what they're going to have, two in the top four. And the finalists are exactly who I thought they'd be. Joe Burrow, Jalen Hurts, Justin Fields, Chase Young. That's who I thought they would be. That's who I thought they should be. But I think if it was going to be five or six, I thought J.K. Dobbins was one of the, the next candidates right there. My guess is he's going to finish either fifth or sixth in the voting. Yeah, I
1: think I think that's probably correct. Um, if you look at him, I think it's um, I, I looked this up before, so I'm going. I'm just I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head. I think it was he hasn't played in the second half of four games this season, and he hasn't played in the fourth quarter of uh, I, I believe either three or four. Um, so it's essentially he's missed like three games. If if I have that right, if it's he's missed basically three games worth of of, uh, of carries. Which is remarkable given his stat line right now, um, and and you can say I think I think it is reasonable to say that. Well, look at what he's done. Look at look at the efficiency that he's had. Um, he deserves a, a Heisman Trophy. Um, he he deserves to go to New York at least. Um, but. Um, I don't know. I think that getting two is fine. (laughs) I don't think you need to lose your mind about J.K. Dobbins not going. Like, I think, sure, the identity of Ohio State's offense, in my mind, was more so it's rushing than it's passing. Um, But, you know, I I think the Buckeyes are going to be okay not having him. And guess what? Like, the other running backs, it's not like he was competing against guys who he was obviously significantly better and he had significantly better stats. The stats are relatively the same. And sure, he didn't play as much as, as some of the others, but, you know, um, they, they, he's not he's not also demonstrably better than them, and at least in my mind.
0: Yeah, the reality is, I think you can absolutely argue that Dobbins had a better individual season than Fields at his position, if you want to make that argument. But Fields and... And, and young are the two biggest reasons why Ohio State's thirteen and zero right now. JK's right up there, but without Justin Fields, Ohio State is not thirteen and zero, and they're not the number two seed in the college football playoff. So that's why if it's if it's if if I had a ballot and I don't have a ballot, so I'm allowed to say this. If you're a voter, you're not allowed to say anything until Saturday. But I I don't have a Heisman ballot, so I'm allowed to say this. If I if I had a ballot, I would have had Joe Burrow at number one. I would have had Justin Fields at number two and I would have had Chase Young at number three. How, how would you have seen it, Colin?
1: I think I would have had... Yeah, I think I would have had Burrow one, Fields two, Chase three.
0: Yeah, and, and I I did say a couple weeks ago I would have voted for Chase. He, he didn't have big games in the last two games, and a lot of that's not his fault. He was being double and triple teamed, and he was freeing up other guys to make plays, but the reality is if you're going to win the award as a as a defensive player you've really got to make plays in all of those big games so i think certainly joe burrow there's no way i would have voted against him for the number 1 spot the way he finished the season a, a, as consistent as he was all year as great as he played all year i think he absolutely deserves the award and i think i think most ohio state fans are going to be happy for him as a as a former buckeye and And somebody who who grew up in Ohio, got an opportunity, and has taken it and ran with it. I think he deserves to win the award. Certainly if you're Justin Fields, Justin Fields is now going to go into next year as one of the top front runners. So if he plays the way he did this year, he'll he'll be back in New York next year. And there's a chance he'll be the one winning the trophy. And then Chase Young, probably not going to win the Heisman, but did already win the Bronco Nagurski trophy as college football's best defensive player. I would certainly anticipate he's going to win the Chuck Bednarik Award on Thursday, which also honors college football's best defensive player. He's certainly going to get a tree in Buckeye Grove as a first-team All-American, and ultimately, at the end of the day, just going to the Heisman Trophy ceremony cements his place as one of Ohio State's best defensive players ever.
1: Yep, there's no doubt about that. Um, So I know that you wrote down that... um Obviously Ohio State has some all American candidates and Chase Young and, and we've talked about him, Justin Fields, Dobbins, and, and also Okuda. And you and you asked the question, is there is there anyone else who you think should be a candidate to be an all American? Was there anyone who you were thinking of?
0: My guess is whether first or second team or whatnot, I, I think I think Chase Young will definitely be a first team All American. I think Jeff Okuda will be a first team All American. I think J.K. Dobbins will probably be a first-team All-American by at least one or two major voting bodies, which is enough to get him a tree. Justin Fields, I think, will probably be a second-team All-American because I think Joe Burrow is going to sweep all of those. I'm guessing Wyatt Davis is going to be a first-team All-American from one voting body or another because I think he's had a great year, and I think he's gotten the most recognition nationally of all the offensive lineman personally if i was voting i would vote for jonah jackson as a first team all-american because i believe he has been ohio state's best offensive lineman this year but i truly i think all three of those interior guys have played it at an all-american level i i don't think josh myers will be this year i think certainly next year he's a guy who's going to be in the running for the remington trophy but Wyatt Davis is probably the guy that I would guess, outside of the four obvious candidates, is the guy who's most likely to end up with a tree in Buckeye Grove this year.
1: Yep he 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 was the one who I was who I was wondering as well. Um, I'm not sure if there's another really great candidate. I think that he is he is the guy who sort of garnered um, as much groundswell support for an offensive guard, <laughs> a redshirt sophomore offensive guard, as you can have. Um, And I I think there's a good chance that he gets that honor. I will say also, I'm not so sure that Dobbins is going to be a first-team All-American by any of the major outlets. I'm just, I think I think he he has a strong case, but I also think a lot of I think I think I think good amount of people are gonna are gonna lean toward uh, Jonathan Taylor for that one. So I I will be interested to see if he can get at least at least one body to vote him an All-American.
0: It's a sorry really inter- a first
1: team all American.
0: It's a really interesting conversation because if you look at the free running backs who are Doak Walker Award finalists, which will be announced on Thursday night. you have Chubba Hubbard from Oklahoma State. He has 1936 rushing yards on 309 attempts. That's 6.27 yards per carry, 21 rushing touchdowns. Jonathan Taylor has 1,909 rushing yards on 299 carries. That's 6.38 yards per carry, 21 touchdowns. JK Dobbins has 1,829 rushing yards on 283 carries, that's 6.46 yards per carry, 20 rushing touchdowns. So those stats are about as identical as they could be. You, you can't look at the numbers and say one guy's clearly better than the other. They've been about as identical as can be. People, people, Ohio State fans constantly bring up the point about J.K. Dobbins not playing in the second half, but you look at the numbers those guys haven't had that many more carries than he has. His yards per carry is better, but it's not demonstrably better. So if I was voting, I'd probably vote for J.K. Dobbins to win the Doak Walker Award. But I, 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 think it's, I think it's really kind of a coin flip between those guys. And, and like you said, Jonathan Taylor might end up winning that coin flip just because I think he's the name that's kind of been in everybody's mind since before of a year and really for the last three years.
1: Yeah. And also he had a really good game against Ohio state and, in, in a way that he just didn't earlier this year. Um, I imagine that'll probably play, play a role as well. Um, do you think it's, do you think it's time to bring on our guest?
0: Yeah, I think so. So we're going to try something a little different here this week and we're going to try bringing in our first guest. I think as we start to, uh, get into non-regular game weeks, we're going to try to do this more often. So, We are going to bring on our 11 Warriors recruiting analyst, Zach Carpenter. He's going to be our guinea guinea pig. He's going to be our first guest, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about early signing day, which is coming up next Wednesday. We'll already be in full swing by the time you hear this podcast. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about it this week and get his thoughts on what to expect from the Buckeyes recruiting class of 2020. All right, Zach, welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays, your first time on this show, our first guest here. Zach, we know you're a big podcast guy, so glad to have you here.
2: Um, I'm blessed and honored and um, uh, humbled and 100% committed to talk about some recruiting today. Well, speaking of commitments, that's what we want to talk about, because early signing day
0: coming up next Wednesday, going to start bright and early, so by the time this podcast is out... Most of the guys are probably already going to be signed. There's 25 commitments for Ohio State's class of 2020 right now. Are you expecting all of them to sign next Wednesday, or are there
2: some guys who might still be in play? As of right now, all 25 are expected to sign next week. I mean, that includes all the big-time guys like Julian Fleming, Jackson Smith and Jigba, G. Scott Jr., Paris Johnson Jr., etc. Um, as of right now, really, the only fly in the ointment, I guess you would say, of those plans is the future decisions of guys like uh, Jeff Halfley, Al Washington, Tony Alford, um, each who have been rumored to be a top candidates uh, for be at Boston College for Halfley and Washington, Colorado State for Alford. But um, I don't believe Alford leaving would have an impact on mine Williams. If Washington departs, I don't think it would have an effect on a 2020 class. Halfley going to BC sounds like it could be the most realistic departure in um, of any coach leaving outside of a wildly unforeseen Ryan day or uh, Brian Hartline departure, that would have the biggest potential impact. Um, Luke Wepler and Cody Simon, they're both New Jersey kids, but they've been sold on the program for a while. And I don't believe Halfley staying or going would affect them, even though they are from Jersey from uh, Halfley's um, neck of the woods and background. But uh, coming up the, the, Defensive back class is what's to keep an eye on going forward. Um, Biggest area of need for the Buckeyes to restock in this class with potentially entire starting secondary gone to the NFL. Um, Not really worried about Clark Phillips, but legend Cavazos, as you'll remember, decommitted last December and recommitted largely due to half-league getting him back on board in the spring. Um, Ryan Watts told me after committing how big of a factor Halfley was in his decision to decommit from Oklahoma and commit to Ohio State. Um, so Halfley developed Richard Sherman in the league and helped him grow. And uh he was Watts was telling me how Halfley could be the one to get Watts to the next level. Um those two have a really strong tight bond, as do Halfley and Cameron Martinez. Um, Martinez listed as an athlete, but expected to be a defensive back in college, most likely a safety. Um, Halfley, Halfley was up in Michigan visiting Martinez on Sunday, and sounds like Martinez hasn't clearly made up his mind on whether he or not he wants to sign early. But I still lean that he'll ink his name on uh, on that line come uh, come Wednesday or Thursday or Friday of next week, um, because I mean. In the end, comfortability in Columbus and in the Ohio State program. The overall vibe, I think, will be overwhelming for most of these guys, especially Watts, um, to sign early next week, even if Halfley does decide to leave for Boston College. But the DB class is by far the most intriguing and potentially not completely set in stone of signing early, even though I do think that in the end, all 25 of these guys are going to wind up uh, signing early next week. I think the big question right now going into signing day
0: is whether the Buckeyes are going to add a second quarterback in this class and of course the big name there being C.J. Stroud. What do you think is going to happen with C.J. Stroud? Is he going to sign somewhere next week and if so is that going to be Ohio State?
2: Yeah yes, yeah. C.J. Stroud second quarterback that's been the biggest uh, storyline ever since um, I joined back in September I, I do think C.J. Stroud ends up coming to Ohio State. And I think it's coming down to uh, Georgia, Ohio State, one-on-one battle. I mean, Michigan's come on late, but I think it's a little too late to have built up a strong enough relationship there. Um, and relationships are always, always the number one or number two most important factor in recruiting. Um, Stroud also announced a USC offer last week. Uh, the, the, that may have been in the works the for weeks um, and he just chose not to announce the offer. That's kind of been his M.O. in the past. If he wants to stay closer to home, it's emerged as USC over Oregon in that regard. Um, even though Oregon was, uh, at one point in time, Stroud's self, self-described dream school, um, he took, Stroud took official visits to Georgia two weeks ago, Michigan last weekend and a hugely important visit to ohio state this weekend official visit so i think an interesting part um i think another interesting part in Strauss recruitment could be uh, whether or not um, jake Fromm decides to enter the nfl draft that might just be a, a small um, part of the scenario but could be a slight factor i guess um, if uh, depending on Stroud if he wants to wait to sign um, in February uh, might see where uh, Fromm's mindset is if he's um, taking Georgia if he's thinking Georgia's the top destination Um, but in the end I do think it's my gut feeling that Stroud will end up taking this official visit to uh, to Ohio State this weekend and uh, it's his last visit before the early signing period and I think that'll be the weekend that cements his decision, and he'll stick with his original commitment date of December 18th, and I believe that will be to the Buckeyes. Any other
0: potential surprises on tap next week? Anyone else that could sign that's
2: not currently committed? I I don't think so. There Obviously, there are possibilities of, I mean, there's been thrown around uh, the possibility of adding a second running back. Um, but if they do, I don't think that's going to come until February's national signing day. And that would most likely only be if Jameer Gibbs chooses to wait until February to sign as expected and chooses to decommit from Georgia tech. Um, EJ Smith, I know is off the Buckeyes board and I believe, uh, Kevantre Bradford is as well, but I'm not a hundred percent certain on Bradford. Um, Defensive end is the other big need, uh, or at least a need for a pure pass rusher. And Tyler Barron and Xavier Carlton are the two to watch there. Uh, uh, Barron said a while back that uh, he will make his n- he will announce his decision on Wednesday, the first day of the early signing period. But uh, that, that's going to be Tennessee. Um, that I, I that I feel like that's almost a lock at this point. His dad, Patrick Abernathy, is an assistant coach there, and I I just think that's a lock, especially with Tennessee sort of bouncing back from that uh, pretty terrible start at the beginning of the season. And as for Carlton, there's a chance uh, that he could end up committing to Ohio State, but I just think that's such a difficult pull uh, away from his home state of Utah, where I mean it it would be a pull from one of the pac 12 schools, any of the number of pac 12 schools that are after him. I mean, pick a pick a program and pick a pac 12 program, and they have they are making their pitch to him. I mean, Washington and their new head coach Jimmy Lake, um, who's the team's defensive coordinator and uh, was the coach in waiting, is now obviously the the new head coach taking over cr- for Chris Peterson. He's got a reputation as a strong, aggressive recruiter who gr- uh, kids gravitate toward. Uh, he was in Utah making, Lake and a couple other Husky coaches were in Utah making an in-home visit with Carlton on Monday night. Um, I don't believe at this point in time that any Ohio State coaches will be making a, vi- a visit to, to Carlton's home before next week, but uh, that remains to be seen, of course, but um, yeah, as far for Carlton, Washington, uh, Utah, Cal, UCLA, they're all going after Carlton fairly hard, and I at this point, hes I don't believe he's in Ohio State lane. We'll talk
0: more about this in the offseason, but right now, who are just two or three players that Buckeye fans should be most excited about landing next week?
2: The The obvious ones are Julian Fleming and Paris Johnson, right? I mean, they're, they're the flashy five stars who've got it all and all the tools to make an early impact. Um, Fleming, I would equate to a five-tool prospect in baseball he's he's got it all he's got size length speed great hands toughness versatility i could easily see him being that garrett wilson type who gets early playing time and makes an instant impact even maybe in uh, week two at Autzen stadium when they when they go up, up against oregon to start next season um, that receiving core next year the buckeyes receiving core is just going to be absolutely lethal with chris Olave coming back garrett wilson more developed more refined and then you're going to have <coughs> Fleming as the projected number three potentially um, with hit Fleming battling Jameson Williams and maybe even Jackson Smith and Jigba for that, for that number three spot. Um, it'll, it'll just be interesting to see who they, who they choose to fill that slot role with in 2020 since Mookie Cooper, I think will end up being a redshirt guy just because he'll, he'll need that extra year after sitting out his senior season over in Missouri. And I think I could see Fleming or Jackson potentially filling that that slot role. Uh, as for Paris, Brandt, with Brandon Bowen gone and Termonfer potentially leaving for the for the NFL Draft, that's going to leave two tackle positions open. Nicholas Petit Frere will fill one, but there's there's a litany of different uh, different offensive linemen who um, who could be battling for that second tackle spot, and it's it still remains to be seen who along that offensive line decides to enter the NFL draft, I mean, you're looking at a potential situation where all all five of them could be gone, which I don't believe is going to happen. That would surprise me, but you never know. It would be very surprising. There's still the potential, but uh, very doubtful. Um, But then, obviously, if C.J. Stroud commits, then whoever wins that backup quarterback job between him and Jack Miller, I think you could see one of them making an impact if Justin Fields goes down for any extended period of time or even just maybe even for a half or for a game. But uh, saving the best for last, um, the secondary, like I said, we're probably looking for four new starters, definitely three, but uh, potentially four. And I, th- I think Clark Phillips is the guy in this class who, uh, I mean, he's, he's absolutely, he's going to step in and he's gonna be a monster um, eventually. Whether that's immediately or a little farther down the road, um, he's gonna be an absolute bull. And I think he could contribute early within the first six games of the season. I mean, cornerback is probably the hardest position to come in and make an instant impact as a true freshman. Uh, Jeff Halfley's talked about it before. At at the college and pro levels, you're gonna have a, a heck of a time as a corner, stepping right in learning the craft and the intricacies of the position. Plus, you've got guys like Cam Brown, Amir Reap, uh, Seven Banks, who have gotten big game experiences and have that experience over Phillips. But still, I, th- I see Phillips as a guy who's, who's going to be a stud, and I do think that he'll end up being the most important player on that Buckeyes defense, or at least in the secondary um, when he's at his peak and fully developed down the road. So if there's, if there's going to be a corner, <coughs> excuse me, in this class who can come in and make that instant impact um across in the in the entire country i I think it'll be phillips
0: we have one reader question for you from the nomadic buckeye he said if you were a recruiter for ohio state and you had to go out and flip one player no matter how unlikely we're talking player in this class committed anywhere who would you go after
2: yeah. And, uh, I answered this question in my Tuesday night, hurry up and people can feel free to go read that at the, at the website and, uh, whoever nomadic Buckeye is it, they always serve up great questions. I think I've like used three or four of their questions. So I always appreciate that. Um, but just to kind of rehash that here, I let me preface it by saying, I don't believe there's going to be a five-star flip. But this this is supposed to be a fun hypothetical. Um, Correct. And the obvious answers are Bijan Robinson and Elias Ricks, and for similar reasons. Um, with Robinson, the Buckeye 2020 class only has one running back. He's a three-star guy who has questions about whether he can be that workload bell cow back, and that's Mayan Williams. Uh, so Robinson would come in, and he would be the man right away with early playing time. As, as far as the 2020 class is concerned, obviously, um, you have Master Teague, Marcus Crowley, Steel Chambers ahead of them, uh, would be ahead of him on the depth chart most likely. But my pitch to him would probably, my pitch to him probably wouldn't work on Ohio State staff since they have a reputation for not negative for negatively recruiting. So I don't know if I'd uh, fit in there. But I would at least be bringing up and asking Robinson if the shaky coaching instability at Texas is at least concerning. I mean, his top two recruiters are Tim Beck and Stan Drayton, uh, Drayton, who's a former Ohio State running backs coach. Beck was already demoted from offensive coordinator, and there have been rumors that Drayton might... There have been rumors, rumors, again, let me stress rumors, that Drayton might get let go after Robinson signs. So... I would be bringing at least bringing that up in phone conversations and visits with Robin with uh, Robinson. Um, and plus, again, purely conjecture on my part, but it's fun and interesting uh, to bring up that if Alfred, does, if Tony Alfred does leave, it is at least possible Ohio State might bring back Drayton um, to be the running backs coach. You know, bring him home to where he was pretty critical in the, in the development of Ezekiel Elliott and Carlos Hyde and i mean like i said before relationships are either the number one or number two most important thing in recruiting but a chance to to develop into a uh, that well-refined potential nfl player is another um and then with with ricks it's a similar answer as far as early playing time and nfl opportunity are concerned uh, I, I already talked about the depleted buckeye secondary next year so you'd have that pitch um, to base it on. And Ohio State's in the running. The, the, the other pitch is Ohio State's in the running for DPU. That sends guys to the NFL every year. But uh, again, like I wrote about, the only problem with that is the school you'd be trying to get them to flip from has the exact same top two selling points. LSU is the other competitor. Along with, along with Florida, LSU is the other competitor for the DPU title. And the Tigers' 2020 recruiting class's biggest need is at defensive back. And uh, LSU has an eerily similar situation to Ohio State next year in terms of turnover. They they both have top-10 draft locks in Okuda for Ohio State and Grant Delpit for LSU, and another fringe first-rounder in Sean Wade and Christian Fulton for LSU. Plus, you have the questions of Halfley staying or going. And LSU doesn't quite have that with Rick's top two recruiters, Corey Raymond and Bill Bush. Um, at least, not that I've not that I've heard or seen. But so I don't really see any real reason for Rick's to flip. But I'm I'm just not sure that would stop me from at least uh, giving it a shot. You know. Well,
0: Zach, thanks for joining us here on Real Pod Wednesdays. We'll have to have you back on again in the off season to talk some more recruiting. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. We thank Zach for joining us. Before we move on to your reader questions, we've got to talk a little bit about Ohio State basketball because the basketball Buckeyes sure have been impressive, Colin. They have. um,
1: I think that they have basically surpassed anybody's expectations. Um, Right now, they are the number three team in the country per the AP poll. If you look at most of the statistic-based sites, um, including Ken Palm. They are the number one team in the country. And if you look at their resume, I mean, it stacks up, and it makes sense why they're there. I mean, they beat, they beat teams that they should beat by a good amount of points. They, they began the year with 8.1 against Cincinnati. They went to Chapel Hill, and they, and they crushed North Carolina. They had a home point, home twenty five point one against Villanova. And then they just laid 106 points on Penn State. And to put that into perspective, there was nobody on the current Ohio State team that was born the last time the Ohio State reached 100 points, uh, which was in 1991.
0: I wasn't even born.
1: No, I wasn't either. Um, so if you look at the rankings, like it's hard to argue that they, that they shouldn't be a top
0: three team, all right? Oh, I think absolutely. I think, again, we, just like we talk about in football, if we're talking about body of work, I don't think there's a team that has a more impressive body of work right now yep. than Ohio State. Just looking at the, the wins they have. I mean, go, going on the road in North Carolina, we, we talked about it last week on this podcast. I know we were both nervous that by the time Thursday rolled around and people were listening to the podcast that we were going to look like idiots for predicting Ohio State to win because... The reality is, that was a guess. We were we neither of us thought Ohio State was going to blow out North Carolina the way it did. And certainly, I think it helped their case that Armando Baycott, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but their yeah their Bacot, big, right Armando Baycott, their their star freshman post player, who's really their second best player after Cole Anthony got hurt early in the game. I think that really hurt North Carolina. Ohio State was able to exploit that. But to go on the road with a young team, as Chris Holtman keeps talking about so much, and and to do that, and to have already done that against Villanova at home, and then to come back on Saturday and do what they did against Penn State, now it's, it's no longer a fluke. Now this team has delivered... Impressive performance after impressive performance, and sure, it's still early in the year. It, it, it still might be a little early to start making proclamations about this team, but we were talking last week about the ceiling. I think we know now the ceiling is certainly Final Four. I I, I don't I don't. I'm not saying they're going to get there yet, but this is a team that certainly has that kind of potential. I I think. The way that they won those two games last week against North Carolina and Penn State tells you that this team has that kind of potential. Yep, I think I think it has that potential. I think it is
1: interesting. I mean, Chris Holtman is never going to be one to walk out here in, uh, in a press conference in December and say that his team is good. Like, he is he is really good at saying his team isn't good, or at least saying that this team has a lot to work on. And, and right now, the thing that he's continually preached now for a couple weeks has been that no one knows how good they really are right now. And I think, listen, I think there's a little bit of that that is true. Um, if you look at, so Cincinnati, that Ohio State beat by eight, they lost a bowl in green. They barely beat Valparaiso. Um, if you look at Villanova, Villanova's still a young team. Um, I think it's it it dropped down to to into the 20s right now in the AP poll. It's not the top 10 win that that it was at the time. Uh, North Carolina has struggled a lot more than than most North Carolina teams do, um, and they also lost Baycott early in that game. Um, honestly, I think Penn State. I mean, they just the thing is, it seems seems to get more impressive as it goes. I think the Penn State win was as impressive as any of these, just because like going into that game, I like. I, I don't know. There's part of me that thought that the Nittany Lions were actually going to win that game, um, and it was and it, and it was largely because it was a little bit of a short turnaround. It was only three days after the the, the road North Carolina game. Uh, I think Penn State this year is actually pretty solid. Um, it's a tough team. It is a team that's gonna that that will uh, prey on Ohio State's mistakes, and then Ohio State went in there and then beat them by thirty-two. And I think that what we've learned right now is this team's really, really good. I am. I, I wanna I want to wait till till the end of December to, to get, sort of get a grasp on like, is this team is this team great? Like, like is this team gonna have staying power in either the top five or the top um, ten? It, it, it's always too early to, to proclaim that. But right now, like, there are certain parts of this team that are absolutely um, gonna be sustainable. I mean, number one to me is defense. Like, I think this is a really, really strong defensive team coached by a, a really smart defensive coach. Um, before Penn State, it held everybody under 60 points and 40% shooting. And then, sure, Penn State I think, scores above 70 at the same time, at least by 30. Um, so if, if you look at this Ohio State team, I think there's a lot to like. And, and sure, what Holtman has said is true. They don't exactly know how good they are right now. But there's no doubt that that they are um, one of the one of the very best teams in the Big Ten, which makes them one of the better teams in the country.
0: So, staff that resonated with me last week after a North Carolina game from ESPN: four four teams ever have beaten two top AP top ten teams by 25 points in the same season. The first three teams to do that were 1967, 68 UCLA. 2000-2001 Duke, 2015-2016 Villanova. And all three of those teams won the national championship. So I'm not saying Ohio State's going to win the national championship. It is early. Surely, we we don't know right now if Villanova and North Carolina are as good as people thought they were going to be going into the year. The early impressions would probably be they're not. But I do think that shows the gravity of what the Buckeyes have accomplished. And I think compared to last year where... Ohio State really outperformed expectations early, but I really don't think they had really played anybody. I think this year the Buckeyes have we knew going into this year the Buckeyes were going to have a tough non-conference schedule, and so far they have handled that as impressively as anyone could have imagined. And, so And
1: also you can just look at the eye test like uh, if we want to call it that. Like last year, like you didn't look at that team and say that's a top 5 team. But if you look at this team You can absolutely make that case. I think there are a couple players that I would name as like swing players almost. Like can this team be great or will it be good? Like that I'm that I'm interested to see just their progression as the year goes on. It's like right now, like Dwayne Washington Jr., he's shooting fifty-three percent from three. That's unsustainable. That's not gonna that 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 will not be the case in the spring. Yet can he stay above a forty percent three point shooter the rest of the way? Like is that possible? I think that, I think that that offense that he has, uh, um, I think that, I think that's really key and that guard spot. I think Caleb Wesson, I'm interested to see just how his year progresses the last two years. Um, as, as they got into to the later half of the regular season, his body sort of started to deteriorate a little, a little bit. He got out of shape a little bit more. Um, from what I can tell, he's staying in shape right now. It's, I, I haven't seen any signs uh, that that should concern right now about that. I'm just interested to see how that plays out. Um, I think EJ Liddell has flashed recently. Um, I'm interested to see what he could be by the end of the year. I think that what he what he is right now versus what he's at the end of the year. I think that there's there's a wide margin there. I think that he could be really good as a, as an off the bench scorer and at, at the four position. Um, Luther's been pretty solid right now. I just want to see if he can. Uh, maintain that efficiency, and also a like DJ Carton against North Carolina. He had six points, shot twice. Um, it, it, I, I, I want to see does does he continue to to take this role, or is there a point in the year where he maybe makes a jump and sort of starts to take over games a little bit more? I think I think there is. I think there are some interesting parts of this team, and and especially like some of those guys I mentioned. I think I think there's room for. For even for them to improve and for them to develop. And right now it just seems like everyone's got such a defined role. I want to see whether they can stay in them and, and get better within those roles.
0: Let's get into some of our reader questions for this week. Starting off with one that was asked by Wolverine Killer, what a which name. I think which which it leads into what his question is. And it's a it's an interesting question. The question is Would you take the winning Mega Millions ticket with the caveat that Ohio State would only beat Michigan one time in the next 30 years? You would remain anonymous, but would have to live with knowing you caused pain to Buckeye Nation for three decades. Would your answer change if you couldn't remain anonymous? Well, I'll be completely honest. The answer to the first question is yes, I'm getting my money. If if I can remain anonymous... I'm, I'm, I'm getting my money. I, I'm also not a fan as much as I am an ob- objective observer of the team. So I'm sure if you were asking someone who is a diehard Ohio State fan, it would be a tougher answer for them. But to me, if, if I have a chance to make life-changing money, uh, there's no question I'm taking that if I can remain anonymous it's not
1: even, it's not even a question <laughs> I will I will run and take that ticket you know what if I'm anonymous listen I didn't grow up in Ohio State Finn. I'm gonna go sit in
0: the big house and go 29
1: and one in the next 30 years with my millions
0: would would your answer be the same even if it was West Virginia would only beat Pitt one time in the next 30 years
1: Yes, but I, but, I also, but I would not become a Pit fan. I might just have to give up college sports and just live as a millionaire watching something else.
0: God, that, sec- that,
1: that, that does make it harder, though. I'll say that much.
0: Now, the second question makes it more interesting because, truthfully, that's the reason why I don't play the lottery in the first place because you hear all the stories about people who win the lottery and then their life ends up you know, going to a bad place, and usually the reason why that is is because everybody finds out that they're now a millionaire, and people try to take advantage of them. So, yeah,
1: I do love that you don't play lottery just because you're afraid to win it. That's that is a baller. That's a baller move.
0: Well, that's that's, that's not. <laughs> that's actually not the only reason. I I I only gamble in situations where I can give myself the idea that. I that I have some control over what happens, whether that's playing poker or making a sports bet that is educated based on the team that I believe will win or how many points they will win by. I I don't I don't do pure chance gambling. I, I only I only gamble if I feel like there's an element of skill involved that could give me a better chance of winning and Vegas tricks you a lot of times. So that's not always the case, but that's actually the other reason why I don't play the lottery. But to answer your question, if I couldn't remain anonymous, I know how crazy some of you Ohio state fans are. If, if people could look up where I lived in knew that I was the reason why Ohio state was going to go one in 29 against Michigan for the next 30 years, I don't want that smoke in my life, so no, I wouldn't.
1: It's a hard question you? because, like, number one, I, I couldn't live in Ohio because I would get murdered. So, no. so I'd probably have to go to Europe. Um, so it's like, would I be rather live in Paris with a million dollars or or however many millions of dollars and or live my current life? Like, really, shoot, like, I don't, I'll just go live in Paris. How many wait, wait? How many millions for a mega millions ticket? I don't play lottery, so I don't know. You
0: see, that was that was not specified. All so. right. So, like, if we're going, I think 1 we million, could assume. Oh, I think you can assume that it's an amount of money that you would be set for life with beyond beyond any any reasonable reason to lose your fortune. Yeah,
1: I mean the real the real worry with this is like, will I get murdered? <laughs> that's that's
0: <laughs> yeah. that's my number one concern. That's a valid concern. That's a valid concern, yeah. and I got. I mean. Buckeye Nation is everywhere. So it, it, it's not, unless you're going to some remote island where nobody will know your existence, I think you're in danger with this one.
1: I'm taking my millions and going to Paris.
0: There you have it. There you have it, folks. Colin would not turn down the money. It's, it's a fact. Moving on to other questions now. Samayak asks us, the advantage Ohio State or Clemson playing in the desert? I I don't know that there's a distinct advantage here. I do think that Ohio State will have at least a slight home field advantage in terms of fan base because I know that there are a lot of Ohio State fans in Arizona. I think certainly a bigger Ohio State fan base than Clemson fan base. I also do know from covering Clemson that their fan base also travels really well so I think there's going to be plenty of Clemson fans. I know when the National Championship game was out there, and, and certainly that was the start of this run. Now this run's been going for years. I know when the National Championship game was out there, uh, their first one where they, they lost to Alabama, I know there were a ton of Clemson fans. If I remember correctly, I believe they were Clemson had a home field advantage over Alabama in terms of the amount of fans who traveled to that game. So I think both teams are going to have big fan bases out there, but I, I do think... Ohio State will have at least a slight majority of fan base. Will that be anything that really swings the game? I'm guessing probably not, but I, I do think there's going to be plenty of Scarlet and Gray in the crowd out there in Arizona.
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly didn't swing 2016. I, I, I really don't think that there's a distinct <laughs> advantage, but I'll say this, if I'm a Clemson fan, yeah, I if I wouldn't mind playing Ohio State back where my team just won 31 to nothing.
0: That That is a good point. That's a good point, Colin. Ginn and Juice By the way, asks I, up, I need a, I need set me up for a little softball here so I can
1: um, tell Ohio State fans that their team is good after saying that I will allow their team to go 1-29 and then also <laughs> reminding them of what happened in 2016.
0: Colin is, Colin is made some enemies out here, man. Ginn and Juice asks us, maintaining the current structure of a four-team playoff, which playoff model would you prefer? the BCS or CFP committee. That's a that's a good way to frame that question because I think we certainly both agree four teams is better than two. I like I like the committee. I like I like there being a human element to it because I don't think there's any perfect computer formula. I don't think there's I don't think there's any perfect system here, period. The reality is it, expansion no matter what there's never going to be a system here that makes everybody happy college football is just too it's too broad it's too complex it's it, it doesn't work as neatly as the professional sports leagues do where everybody can play each other and then you can have standings that make it clear there's, there's just not a good way to do that in college football where it, it becomes absolutely clear Without any debate on who who goes to the postseason and who doesn't, but I do think it's better to have a human element. You're not always going to agree a fair decision, but I, I do think it's better to have people who can critically think about what the playoff field should be than simply relying on a mathematical formula. Yeah, it's not
1: it's it's not needed all the time. I think I think often. It would either have the same four teams or basically the same four teams um, in, in a different order. Um, I I would I would do the committee too. I don't think it, I don't think it's a giant deal though. Um, I think that I think that it allows maybe maybe the way the public wants to um, think about college football and think about the teams in it. I think that. Um, it's not like public pressure, but I think if the public is viewing something in one way, uh, all of a sudden the committee starts to view it in the same way, and you can view that as good or bad, but I think that um, like at least in my opinion, it has made people think about losses differently. It has made people um, value, value, um, value wins, and, and also realize that if you lose by one to the number one team, it's not a terrible loss, and, and I know that some people just see a loss as a loss, but I think I think it does add a little human element, um, and I and I think that's good. A lot of times, it doesn't ultimately matter, um, but but sometimes, um, especially back in 2014 when Ohio State got in, I, I think it does matter. And I I like the committee. I think that the committee, I don't, I, I the committee is definitely imperfect. The committee will forever be imperfect. Like you said, I don't think there will ever be a perfect system, but I think at least it's a step um, in a better direction.
0: While Colin was talking I looked up a I found a link quote-unquote BCS proxy rankings that uses some of the computers that BCS used and and polls to simulate what the BCS would look like and Their rankings would have been LSU number one Ohio State number two Clemson number three Oklahoma number four even Georgia at number five so to back up Colin's point this year, it wouldn't have been any differently. It would have been the same result. This was also as clear-cut a top four as the committee's ever had, so I don't know for sure off the top of my head whether it would have been that way in previous years, but I do think Collin's right. I think in most cases, it, it's going to play out about the same way. I do think the committee is the better option, though. Gin and Juice also asked us, what are our opinions about eliminating preseason rankings? I remember we were asked about this earlier in the year, and we discussed it. I think we both agreed that it's, as uh, media members who like having things to talk about, we're probably not going to eliminate them. It's just part of a sport. I also don't, again, if we're looking at this year, I don't think they had any effect on anything, because Clemson was ranked number one going into the year, and they ended up at number three, and I'm pretty sure Ohio State was ranked ahead of LSU, I don't remember for sure on that, but... I think I think people worry a little too much about the effect that preseason rankings have. Sometimes I think typically things tend to play each other, play themselves out, and I don't know if they have as much of an impact at the end of a season as people might think.
1: Yeah, also preseason rankings will literally never go away. Like we're yeah. eliminating oh, yeah. preseason rankings. Like what is? How, I'm not sure how we how the world would go about doing that. Is no one allowed no. them to, to rank anyone in preseason? Like I don't. That's that's impossible. So I even think if it's...
0: even if you didn't have a AP preseason poll, yeah, then, yeah. people would still have preconceived notions about teams. It uh, unless unless you sequestered the college football playoff committee all year long and 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 didn't you know you if you. Uh, I don't even know how you do. You have to, you'd have to find 15 people who have never watched college football in their life and know nothing about them and sequester them all year and then put the numbers in front of them and have them make a pick. That's the only way you're going to go into this without having people having preconceived notions. And I don't know if that would be any better. So I think it's just the, i think it's just the way it is.
1: Seattleinga asks, I understand the players were given a week off to rest, relax, and recharge. When do they start practice again?
0: My understanding is, based on what Ryan Day said on Sunday, is that this week is almost like a bye week for them. Most of the coaches are out on the road recruiting, so they'll have some workouts. Typically, during this period, most of those workouts are led by either the strength coaches or they're led by the GAs and quality control coaches because the the main coaches are out on the road recruiting. That's the way it'll be until next Wednesday when the early signing period begins and then everybody comes back to campus so they don't they don't practice much this week next week is going to be structured more like a game week so they will approach next week as if they're preparing to play on saturday the players will end up going home for a few days get to see their families for christmas then they will go out to the bowl site uh, two sundays from now and then that will be their full game week so they're going to have basically two game weeks next week might be a little more abbreviated because they're still finishing up recruiting and then there's there's players getting some time to go home but they, they will be practicing definitely next week practicing as if it's a game week and also shout out to Seattle Linga, who Colin and I finally got to meet in person last week in Indianapolis one of the most active commenters on 11 Warriors. So it was great to get to meet you. Not sure if any of you others were there, but we saw a lot of people out there in Indianapolis supporting 11 Warriors. So we thank you all for uh, showing up and, and showing your support.
1: Absolutely. Another big uh, commenter who uh, we always like, uh, Bartholomew S. asks, uh, big topic lately has been the rankings. Did they get the top three in the right order? And if yes... Why does Kansas deserve to be number two? <laughs>
0: that one's all you, Colin, because it's I don't know enough about. There. Yeah, I don't know enough about college basketball rankings to to say that.
1: oh well, listen, if we want to go back up and, and talk about um, preseason rankings, you know, what we're not going to debate uh, college basketball rankings in early December. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not happening. So, uh, uh, yeah, Ohio State probably deserves to be ahead of Kansas, but you know what? Uh, there are four number one seeds, so all that matters is being
0: in the top four. Yes, that is a debate for March, not for December, but we do appreciate the question and the, the humor, Bartholomew. Buckeye in Cleveburg asks, do you think the extra time to prepare for Clemson in the semis outweighs the benefit of the path of least resistance offered by playing the four seed? I'd say no, because I think I think there is an advantage of of getting to play the weaker opponent, and that doesn't mean that Ohio State can't handle Clemson, that Ohio State isn't going to have a good game plan, but whether they're playing a 3 seed or a 4 seed, unless we're talking about four hours from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., they they both have the same number of days to prepare, so I don't think it outweighs it. Again, I think there's a good chance Ohio State is going to have to play Clemson either way, so... I don't think it's a make-or-break deal here, but I do think there is there would have been a real advantage of playing the four-seed over the free seed Oklahoma could make us all look like fools, but my opinion, Oklahoma would have been a much more favorable matchup from Clemson, and that would have been a real advantage.
1: I agree with that. Um, like you said, unless there's four hours are the difference, and I don't believe they are, um, then I would rather, if as a coach not play Clemson until you absolutely have to.
0: Enon Buck 79 asked a similar question and that, did the playoff committee basically just give the title to LSU <laughs> by protecting them? And then there's a lot of stuff about SEC bias and all that. But just to answer the actual question, no, they didn't just give the title to LSU by protecting them. I do think it improves LSU's odds of winning the title, and I think that's why if you look at the Vegas odds right now, LSU has the best odds, whereas before Sunday, Ohio State had the best odds. So I, I do think it helps LSU's chances, but LSU is going to be in for a hell of a game against either Ohio State or Clemson. There's no question about that. And as long as you get there to that national championship game, you, you've you got a shot. And, and there is the theory that if LSU cruises past Oklahoma and Ohio State or Clemson, either one, really has to win a battle. Maybe that primes them a little more for that next game. I, I do think LSU has an advantage here, but I certainly don't think they've been given the title. I don't think anything's been given.
1: Yeah, definitely not. Um, I think that it just so happened that they chose LSU. I don't. I don't. I really don't think that there's some mass conspiracy there espn bias or anything i don't think frank beamer and ronnie lott and rc slocum picked lsu because heather denich said that lsu was the deserving number one seed
0: no i i I completely agree with that south pacific buck asked with arnett playing in a cast he's less likely seen as snag to interception Browning has had some issues of misdirection. Pete Warner and Tuff Borland have had some issues covering the inside pass. How does Ohio State's defense prepare over three weeks to give Clemson less weak areas to exploit? Well, first of all, I, at least based on what Damon Arnett said last week, his expectation is that he will be in a smaller cast by the time they play Clemson. So basically the same kind of cast he was wearing – when they played Indiana when he had a ninety-six yard pick six. So I do think that's been an issue in terms of him getting an interception, but I don't necessarily know that it will be going into a playoff. The linebackers I, I do think brown I do think Baron Browning had some issues with being confused on plays against Wisconsin. And tough Borland and Pete Warner are always the punching bags for the fan base that when things go wrong, they tend to point to those two. But I, I still don't necessarily view the linebackers is all of a sudden some big weakness on this team i think they're playing a lot better than they were last year i do think the defense as a whole has looked more vulnerable so i certainly think i certainly think they need to heavily scrutinize their film from the last two weeks and they need to find the areas that teams are exploiting and and maybe come up with some new schematic wrinkles to try to overcome that because certainly Clemson is going to have a good game plan in place to try to exploit any weaknesses Ohio State has had. But we've seen Greg Madison and Jeff Hafley do a really good job all year of, of coming up with different schematic wrinkles and and making adjustments to find ways to put their guys in, in position. So I think they'll have a good game plan. Uh, certainly Clemson is going to expose any weaknesses if you have with Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne and, and T. Higgins and Justin Ross, but I, I think Ohio State will have a good game plan in place. I still don't think there's any major weakness that a team is going to be able to exploit over and over again. I, I think they just have to really execute well, and I think the last couple weeks have shown that if they don't do that, they can put themselves in an early hole.
1: Yeah, it's also important to remember that the I think the last three weeks they played what are probably um, the... Th- the, the three best the three best offenses that they've faced um, this year at least I, I at least I think I agree no, I think that's absolutely. I think that's reasonable to say and and I think back to back to back it's only natural that you don't you don't just kill it in every single game it's not like you it's and and they really have they haven't gotten um, I think that there are small things that, that they that they've gotten picked apart but like they gave up twenty one points last week. And I know that they were down at half, so I think it, I think it just viscerally looked a little bit different than that, at least for the first half. Um, but they have made smart adjustments in games. Um, I think that that is something that really matters and absolutely will matter against Clemson. Um, and I think that you give them a little bit more time to heal. You give um, I think their cornerbacks were definitely banged up a little bit. Um, you're right about it, about the linebackers getting a chance to look at this recent film. I think that they're probably the people who can most benefit. And I'm interested to see how the, how Ohio State tries to rele- uh, release Chase Young because um, I do think that they can be a little bit more creative with him than, than they've been in the last three games, and I think that I think they can do something there.
0: Yeah, I agree, I agree with that on Chase Young because we did see – it seemed like all year that teams weren't going to be able to find a way to stop Chase Young. and We, we did see the last two weeks that Michigan and Wisconsin were able to come up with a strategy to, to start to neutralize him. So I agree. I think that is one thing they need to work on is is finding different ways. Because we've seen it. He's, he's lined up at linebacker. He can stand up. You can move him inside. There's a lot of different things you can do with Chase Young. I, I, I would think that These coaches are pretty smart. They're probably going to find some different ways to utilize Chase Young to try to catch Clemson off guard.
1: Hovenot asks, what is the overall vibe in Columbus right now within the community and the campus? Describe how people are reacting to the football
0: and basketball teams. I'd say the vibe is pretty, pretty good. I think everybody's feeling very good right now about Ohio State football and basketball, and if they're not – then I would question what they could possibly be expecting beyond what they've already seen, because uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna call it easy mode, Colin, because we know what happens when we do that. But uh, right now, oh, things are it's a pretty good time to be a Buckeye right now.
1: Yeah, I think that um, yeah, it doesn't really get any better than this right now, and I think that people are people are eating that up. Um, I think. So I, I wouldn't necessarily call it arrogance. I would call it confidence in the teams because you know what? Ohio State hasn't lost a game in either football or basketball since the spring, um, and, it, and it and I think people are feeling that, as they yeah, should. I mean, it's, it's not it's, it's not often that that you can have a number two football and a number three basketball team.
0: Yeah, it's a good time to be a Buckeye, and it won't it last is. forever. So enjoy it, appreciate it. Don't. Don't spend every waking hour worrying about what could go wrong or scrutinizing the little things. Enjoy it because almost literally every other fan base in the country would like to be sitting where Ohio State fans are sitting right now. So, enjoy it, soak it up. It's a good time to be a Buckeye. Zimio7 asks about He asks he asks about Ohio State he hasn't seen Ohio State run intentional misdirections. He thinks those would work with Clemson's defensive line. Are one and a half weeks enough time to put counters in the playbook? That'd probably be a better question for someone who's actually has coaching experience. Uh, but it probably also depends on whether Ohio State has been working on that during the year. I don't know that... Ohio State is necessarily at this point in the year going to come up with a play that they've never done before and, and just try to make it a big part of their offense or defense in a two-week span. But I do think there are a lot of things they work on over the course of the spring and summer, and we've kind of seen it all year, where there's little wrinkles that they kind of bring out as the season progresses. And a lot of that stuff goes back to what they've done way back in the spring of the summer, so we're not privy to what the Buckeyes did behind closed doors in all those practices. There's a reason for that. They don't want the opponents to know what they're going to do, but I still believe, especially because of how lopsided a lot of these games have been, and the same is certainly going to be true for Clemson here, but I still believe there's probably quite a few pages in that playbook that haven't been revealed yet, and and, and I would certainly think in a game of this magnitude, the Buckeyes are going to have a few tricks up their sleeve that we haven't seen yet.
1: Yeah, uh, if, you, if you want to talk about, like, are they going to implement a new play? Like, that, like some, something that they're going to use more than once, like that, that, that's not going to be implemented between now and the bowl game. What they do is they implement all the every, all, everything like that in the off season, and then throughout the year, they'll pick out certain plays that they're going to use each week. Um, Ryan Day calls it like a bucket system. Um, where if they want to have an outside run, then they have these options, and then they can pick within those options a certain play. Um, it's, it's fairly complex, and it's fairly smart, and it's streamlined, um, and it makes sense. Um, and so they, I don't imagine we're going to see any gigantic differences in the way that Ohio State runs. I mean, if you look at them, like their outside and inside zone run plays or what's got them to to this point where their offense, their, their run game is, is at the level it is. I I really don't anticipate that that they're gonna change that up much and, and I don't think they really need to.
0: Silver Sniper, first of all he says, Colin, you spoke the conspiracy to avoid sending LSU and Clemson to Arizona existence. I was the one who who had that conspiracy theory. I don't I don't know if Colin wants that on his name. Oh, I was let line. me tell
1: you, I, I do not oh shoot, we haven't done a conspiracy segment with you yet, Dan.
0: Gotta get on that. Yeah, yeah we'll, 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 we'll get there. Uh, Silver Sniper, the, the question ends up being about the shameless campaigning, his quote, that CBS and ESPN did for LSU to be number one. Do you believe that relentless campaigning in the media and during the games creates even a subconscious bias for the committee members? And then it goes on to say more about the SEC getting the benefit of the doubt the committee has more southern reps than any other region, what can be done to even the playing field and allow fair opportunities for other conferences to represent in the playoffs. Well, I think we talked about this a little before. I I don't I don't really believe there's an SEC bias or, or any of that in the committee. I, I you know I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, especially a team like Georgia is is probably getting more benefit of the doubt than they deserve. I I, I, I do think that certainly you know the SEC does get more benefit of a doubt than some teams but i i also don't think that i think this idea that the networks are biased against teams gets way more played up than it should be and and and, and the reality is even if you want to say that if you if you if you think ESPN and CBS are biased against the sec fine but then if i if you're looking at it from the other perspective then then you'd have to say fox is biased against the big 10 because fox has promoted the big 10 just as much as those networks have promoted the sec so i i really don't think i really don't think that the networks and who they choose to promote and all that has as much of an impact on any of this as, as people think. I, I really don't. I I understand where it comes from and it and this is the way it is and in every sport and every league and, and people always think that, that people are out to get their team and you know you're always going to see the bias, the perceived bias that you think people have against your team rather than for your team but I don't know. I mean, this is one I really don't have the conspiracy theory hat on. I, I I think it was a tough decision. The committee sided toward LSU. Whether that was right or wrong, it's hard to say. But I, I really don't think it was a, a conspiracy to promote the SEC here and to give the SEC some unfair advantage.
1: Yeah, I think there is an interesting um, conversation to be had about the, the promotion of, of certain conferences, um, because it is true that like if you're a rights holder of, of, of a certain conference, then like it would sort of go against your business model to, to promote the other one. Yet at the same time, I think I think it what, what what is difficult for a lot of people and it's and it's reasonable in my mind is like I think there are a lot of reporters who are covering um, that who are covering the teams that, that are objective. I think the promotion sometimes isn't necessarily objective, and I think that that's sometimes hard to separate. Like, also, like if if we're going to talk about like Talking Heads or whatnot, like do you think that these people have not heard Joel Klatt? Like, I I, I, I do think there are other people on the other side. Like you said, Fox has been very promotional. Um, it, it, it's it's had a lot of, of Big Ten content and very pro Big Ten content. So like, sure, uh, subconscious bias is there. Like, could could I imagine that there are subconscious biases? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's just how that's just how life works um, I imagine there probably is I also don't think that LSU is number one solely because of that I think LSU is a strong resume um, and while maybe I might pick Ohio State by the slimmest of margins I it's I don't think it's an egregious sin to, to have LSU number one
0: and like you mentioned with Fox with with the way Fox has grown its college football coverage this year I think the Big Ten has had a bigger promoter than it's had in years it because has. of Fox. Shoot, that Maybe. might be worth a story. <laughs> I mean you 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 have a you have an Ohio State employee who is on TV every single week talking about how good Ohio State is, and he's one of the most prominent analysts in college football right now. You're of course again, talking about Urban Meyer. I am, of course, talking about Urban Meyer. So again, just all I'm saying is it goes it goes both ways and i i could tell you this that when when i covered clemson people thought everyone was biased toward ohio state so that's just the way it is is whatever that's just the way it is but whatever fan base you're in you 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 tend to you tend to notice when people are favoring someone else and in some cases There certainly are bias. I mean, there there certainly are people out there who, you know, live in the South and believe that the SEC always reigns supreme. But I I don't think that's a network-wide conspiracy at ESPN or or any of that. I really don't. Silver Sniper also asked, what happened to the mesh routes that they deployed to destroy Michigan last year? I noticed we seem to be favoring the sideline passes that take longer to develop and are difficult passes to complete. It's a good question. I don't know that I necessarily have a good answer for that. I think part of it is playing to the strengths and what they believe the strengths are of their quarterback and receivers. So I think... In, in Justin's case, I think they might feel that he's stronger on those sideline, outside passes, whereas maybe with, with Dwayne, they, they thought he was stronger on those passes going over the middle. I think they also had more receivers, like Paris Campbell last year, who was really good on some of those crossing routes going over the middle, and, and now they've got more guys like Chris Olave who I think are probably better on plays on the outside. So I think that's part of it. You know, I, Like Colin said before, there are the buckets within the offense, and they use different ones every week. So I think that mesh concept is still there, and we could potentially even still see it in the college football playoff. I think it was just something they chose to prioritize more in the past couple of years, because they felt it, pit their personnel maybe better than it does this year.
1: Yeah, one thing I dispute in the question is it, it says that the longer uh, the sideline passes are more difficult to complete. But I think that the the way that Justin Fields passes the ball in those situations, I actually think he completes them in a similar way that Dwayne Haskins completed those mesh routes. Like I just think those are second nature to him. I think that they look harder than the mesh than the mesh routes uh, look for Dwayne. Yet at the same time. I think they played a played to Justin's arm strength and, and his timing on those where maybe the mesh routers isn't as, the, the timing isn't necessarily there the way that it was for Dwayne um, and I do think you're right about about um, you're not going to get a Paris Campbell in space this year Ohio State just doesn't have that kind of guy who they're going to play every single uh, every single every single drive um, I do wonder about whether some of the younger guys could be that but they're not that right now so so I think that that matters too. Um, and the caveat to this answer is neither of us are coaches, so I'm not sure I can give you the best answer on that, but that's that's sort of the way
0: that I view it. I think one of our next guests is going to be Kyle Jones. Yeah, we should hit him up before the Clemson game. No, I was actually thinking that already of, of getting Kyle Jones on here for a guest spot because we've had that specifically requested, and he he can definitely do a better job of answering some of your uh, coaching specific questions than we can. So that's something we'll try to make happen here in the near future. Let you guys know when that's coming, and that way you'll have the opportunity to ask him some questions that he can probably answer better than we can. Last question for tonight comes from Dark Sun GM. Brendan White didn't travel to the championship game for personal reasons. Any chance he's transferring? His role never really played out with how well Werner is playing. Well, I'll say, first of all, as I've said before, I really don't like to speculate on whether players are going to transfer because I, I don't think that's fair to them. Uh, I I don't know what his personal reasons are. So, again, don't, don't really want to speculate on that because it could be any number of things. That said, I, I think obviously this year has not gone the way that anyone thought it was going to for Brendan White and... You know, I think certainly I believed he was going to play a huge role in this defense this year, and it like he like he said, he just it just didn't pan out. Pete Werner ended up remaining a free down player, and with the way the defense is structured, with only one safety, Pete Warner playing that same linebacker spot, free cornerbacks, there just hasn't really been a role for for Brendan White, and I think. There's probably multiple reasons for that. I think most likely he did not take to the role as well as they thought he would. I think the role that they tried to move him into as more of a linebacker than a safety, maybe that didn't fit his game as well as they thought it would. I think Pete Warner's development is also a big reason for that because they just didn't want to take him off the field. I think for whatever reason, the coaches feel like in most situations that Pete Werner is the guy they'd rather have out there than Brendan White, so I think he might have just become a casualty in that situation, and, and certainly if I was in his shoes, I would now be wondering, am I going to play next year, or am I going to be on the bench, so certainly I think, you know, if he were if he were to look to transfer, it wouldn't surprise me, and I would totally understand why he would, because he has not played the role that anyone thought he would this year, and I also think he is a talented player. Why that hasn't led to more playing time this year, I don't know. But I think based on what we saw at the end of the 2018 season when he was one of the best players on a bad defense, I, I think if he, whether at Ohio State or elsewhere, if he ends up in a situation where he is playing a regular role, I think he can be a playmaker and I think he can be a really good player. But we're just going to have to see how this this plays out here because right now other than the fact that he didn't make the trip to Indianapolis. We just don't have a lot of details, and I don't know if maybe there's been other behind the scene things that have led to why he hasn't played as much, but it's just been a bit of a weird season for him, not the season that anyone expected for him. Ohio State's defense is, has done great without him playing much, so it's hard to really scrutinize the coaches for not playing him more, but it's definitely been surprising.
1: Yeah, if you were to transfer, it's one of those that that would just you'd be understandable of it because he's a Rose Bowl MVP. Comes into this year, it seems like they created a whole new position for him. When I think ultimately what the bullet really is is basically a strong side linebacker who's more athletic than most linebackers. Um, and like like uh, like you mentioned, it just turned into the Pete Warner position. And next year, Brandon White will be a senior. And Brent, Pete Werner is also gonna be back. And, it, and it, like it's only natural for him to wonder, what what would my playing time be next year if I stick around at Ohio State? So like, is there any chance he's transferring? Sure, I imagine there is. Um, yet at the same time, it's it's hard to know. You, we don't know it's that situation right now. And he, like you said, he's a talented player. He can play places. He, could, he played at Ohio State at a really high level. Um, I think he could play at Ohio State at a high level again. Um, it is probably one of the more mysterious parts this year, and there's really no true answer. We haven't been able to talk to him since I think the second or third week of the year, um, and I'm not exactly sure how this will play out. I'm sure if he stays, that, that that he'll 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 be able to find some sort of role, and if if he opts to, to play somewhere else, I'm sure he would he'd play just fine elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I, I do think you know two two additional points to that. For one, if I was court Williams or if I was someone else being recruited as a potential linebacker safety hybrid type of players I would definitely look at what Brendan White did this year and I would have questions for the coaches about what my role is going to be it 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 might be what Pete Warner's doing it might be something else but I think I would have questions if I was a recruit coming in uh, especially as somebody who's been a safety because of the way they're playing this defense this year of only one safety out there. There's going to be less playing time to go around for safety. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And then secondly, I think if Brendan White transfers, I think he's going to have a lot of interest. Because I think, I think just like Joe Burrow, who we talked about earlier, I think he's somebody where if he goes somewhere else for a year, I think he could make a really big impact and have a great year and, and go on to play in the NFL. I think he has that kind of talent it just it just might not materialize at ohio state for whatever reason and you know we'll see what happens i don't want to write him off yet because we we don't know how this is going to play out but I, I do think that if if he ultimately decides to transfer i i think he'll probably end up at another big school and i think he'll probably have the opportunity to do really well wherever he goes yep i agree with
1: all of that i think that i think he's a strong player and i i'm as i'm as fascinated to to, to see this play out as anything else. I'm I'm honestly not exactly I'm not exactly sure how it will.
0: Well, we've certainly kept you long enough for tonight. So, thank you once again for listening to A, a Long and Lots to Talk About episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. We'll be back next week. We'll we'll dig in a little bit more to the college football playoff, talk about whatever else might come up. We thank Zach Carpenter for joining us on this week's episode, and we we thank all of you for listening once again. We look ahead to the college football playoff coming up in a couple weeks, and we'll be back next week to talk about it some more.